We'll be reading paragraphs three and four there. And also, let's open up God's Word to John chapter three. John chapter three. Let me begin with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for this very special day. A day, Lord, that you have called uncommon. It is your day, a day that belongs exclusively to you, Lord. And, and we pray, therefore, in light of this, that you will greatly sanctify the hearts of your people who gather here today with the conscience, with the conviction driving each one of us to be most mindful of this fact that we are to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we pray thus, Father, for the grace to that end. And we also thank you for the means of grace that you have blessed us with each and every Lord's Day to enable us to keep this day holy. And so we thank you, Father, for the teaching of your holy word. And we ask that as your word goes forth, even in this time, that it will do so by the anointing power of the Blessed Spirit. And we, Lord, we pray we would not hear your word in vain, but that we would hear it effectually. Open our eyes to see and behold wondrous things out of your word today. And in particular, how your word is confessed and taught in our confession of faith. We commit these things into your hands for the sake of Christ Jesus our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's open up to our confession. Chapter 10 of effectual calling and reading paragraphs 3 and 4. 3 and 4. Paragraph 3, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. Then paragraph four, others not elected, although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved, much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion, they do 
profess. All right, and then John chapter 3, and the Word of God, reading verses 3, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Verse 3 of John 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. May God bless the reading of his holy and righteous word. We return this morning to our present series in the Second London Baptist Confession where we will now consider the last two paragraphs of chapter 10 on the doctrine of effectual calling. The first two paragraphs have helped us wrap our minds around this doctrine as a whole as we've defined what it is and highlighted the source of this calling which is God's free and special grace alone. One thing we must see about this biblical truth is that in the order where it appears in the confession, it follows chapter 9 on free will. And the importance of this connection is that in chapter 9, the truth of man's moral inability as a fallen sinner was exposed, showing that man in his sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. This means that if man is left to himself in all his sinfulness, then he is never going to move toward Christ and close with Christ in saving conversion. So where then is man's hope of ever coming to Christ for salvation? His only hope is in the sovereign grace of God, which shows itself first by calling the sinner to Christ. But this calling to salvation is effectual since it will bring forth the intended design and purpose of God, which is the salvation of those sinners he's chosen to save. And the way in which God does this is inwardly by the regenerating work of the Spirit and outwardly through the preached gospel of Christ, pleading with the sinner to repent and trust in Christ alone to save. This is God's standard rule in how sinners are converted to Christ and how they are effectually called. Now, having spent two weeks on the first two paragraphs in chapter 10, we'll conclude this study today by considering the final two paragraphs which cover what I'm categorizing as effectual calling without limits. Effectual calling without limits. In these last two paragraphs of chapter 10, we see first that it is God alone who summons sinners to salvation. 
But we also see that despite who the sinner is or where they might be in life, they must be effectually called by God if eternal salvation will be their true experience. In other words, the effectual call of God is indispensable. That is to say, it is essential. It is vital. It is absolutely mandatory if any sinner will be actually saved. And these final two paragraphs stress this truth, but in a very unique way. First, in paragraph three, we'll see how God's effectual call reaches infants dying in infancy and the mentally impaired. Then secondly, in paragraph four, we'll look at what God's effectual call says to the non-elect. So to begin with, let's consider first how God's effectual call reaches infants dying in infancy and the mentally impaired. Reading paragraph 3 again. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. So also are all elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. There is perhaps no paragraph in the Second London Confession that generates more difficulty than paragraph 3 in chapter 10. It is a portion of the confession that Christians will take exception to, and for some they will outright reject it altogether. Needless to say, it is prudent for us to walk carefully through this paragraph seeking to understand it both historically and theologically. Historically speaking, it is significant that this paragraph is found in the Westminster Confession as well as in the Savoy Declaration. James Renahan, remarking on this fact, notes that the inclusion of the paragraph in the three confessions And the harmony of doctrine on this topic indicate that it was an important consensus belief in the Puritan era. But why did these brethren forging these Reformed confessions believe it necessary to address this topic under the larger doctrine of effectual calling? To quote again from James Renahan, he writes the following. In many ways, it was important to address these matters. Infant mortality rates were extremely high, producing frequent pastoral questions. Whenever a believing parent loses an infant or toddler, it becomes extremely important to know what the scriptures and Christian theology have to say on the topic. In Puritan-era literature, it is generally agreed that the Bible does not directly address the question though there are a few verses frequently appealed to, but also believed that these texts and other points of theology may be brought together to produce a satisfactory answer to a heart-wrenching inquiry. So imagine, if you will, that as a pastor in the 17th century, here's the historical significance, That as a pastor in the 17th century, you're facing a mortality rate among young people where one-third die before the age of 15. That is a fact. That is a fact. See, we don't face that today. 
But in the 17th century, that was a fact. So how do you address this pastorally? You see, paragraph 3 here in chapter 10 of the Second London Confession is dealing with a real-life problem in a pastoral way. And not only is it communicating to the frequency of infants dying in infancy, but it's also highlighting those with mental impairments and handicaps, both of whom, it says, are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. This means that Romans 10.17 cannot apply to these particular people. You remember Romans 10.17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ? Infants and the mentally impaired will not be able to hear the preached word of Christ with spiritual understanding that translates into saving conversion. So how then do we address this problem? Or we can raise this question, and this is really the more important question. Is it possible for God to save sinners who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word? That's the more important question. The first answer to this question is that you cannot limit God where God has not limited himself. Now, we need to get that. A lot of Christians don't get that. But listen to this. You cannot limit God where God has not limited himself. Despite the fact that infants and the mentally impaired have no hope of coming to actual faith in Christ, whereby they close with Christ in saving conversion, this reality in their context does not hinder God in any way from saving them. You say, how so? It is because such persons are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. Now, what exactly is the Second London Confession saying here? Well, to begin with, we see in this statement the reaffirming of God's absolute sovereignty in salvation. In this case... It is emphasizing how the Holy Spirit works when and where and how he pleases. The biblical reference cited here in paragraph 3, and this is most interesting. Look at it. The biblical reference cited here in paragraph 3 is John chapter 3 verse 8. Where Jesus says to Nicodemus concerning the work of the Spirit in the new birth, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The point pressed here from this text is how the Holy Spirit works in regeneration both sovereignly and mysteriously. You cannot physically see the Spirit regenerate a soul. You cannot physically see that. But if the Spirit chooses to do so, then you cannot hinder his work no differently than you can control the wind. So then God is not limited in who he chooses to save, no matter their station in life, even if they are incapable 
of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. But in addition to this, we also must see that the foundation of our salvation never changes even for infants and the mentally impaired. For even they must be regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. And the biblical reference cited for this fact is again in John chapter 3. But this time, it is in verses 3, 5, and 6, where our Lord Jesus declares, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verses 5 and 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot see, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. The clear reason the confession employs these verses under this particular topic is to show that no one, that's a universal negative, no one sees or enters God's kingdom unless they are regenerated by the Spirit. Even for infants and the mentally impaired, they must be born again if they are to enter God's kingdom. Jesus says so in no uncertain terms. The word unless, as our Lord uses that term in verse 3, I say to you, unless, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That word unless is a word of condition. How then may we enter the kingdom of God? The condition is that you must be born again. This is God's way of salvation for all sinners, no matter whom they are or where they may be in this world. Furthermore, we must remember that since we are all born in sin, Psalm 51 verse 5, since we are all born in sin, then an infant is not sinless. An infant is not sinless. This means, now follow me very carefully here. This means that while they are not guilty of actual transgression, they do share in the guilt of Adam's sin as their representative head. Romans 5, 12 through 14 makes that very clear. So then a child in their mother's womb is conceived in sin despite the fact that they have committed no sin. They therefore come into this world under the condemnation rendered to all the human race in Adam. This is why even infants, if they are to be saved, must be saved no differently than a grown adult who has no physical impairments whatsoever. And beloved, what this teaches us, and here's something that I'm sure you probably have never thought about. What this teaches us is that it is not faith, but regeneration by the Spirit, which is the non-negotiable for salvation. Now listen to this. It is not faith, 
but regeneration by the Spirit, which is the non-negotiable for salvation. So Jesus emphatically declares to Nicodemus in John 3, 7, you must be born again. He does not say you must have faith. He says you must be born again. Now, obviously, faith in Christ, repentance of sin, are part of the ordinary means by which we see sinners converted and enter God's kingdom. That's the ordinary means. But the second London Confession is not addressing an ordinary circumstance. It's answering the question as to what one says to the fact of infants dying in infancy and the mentally impaired, both of whom we would not expect to see faith and repentance. They are both incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. But... Here's the question. Are they incapable of being regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit? Even further, are they incapable incapable of being chosen or elected by God to salvation? Well, the answer of God's word is no. No. The author of their salvation is God and God is not limited by their circumstances to save them. Moreover, when it comes to salvation, they must be regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit. Otherwise, they will perish under the condemnation imputed to them in Adam. This means, of course, that neither the infancy of the infant nor the handicap of the mentally impaired is the basis for their salvation. No, if they are saved, then it will be by Christ through the Spirit though their circumstances are quite extraordinary. So then the great driving point of this entire paragraph is that God is not limited to save any infant dying in infancy or the mentally impaired despite their limitations to being outwardly called by the ministry of of the word. If God has chosen to save them, then they will be saved through the mysterious work of the, of the Spirit regenerating them by the meritorious work of Christ in their behalf. This is how God's effectual call reaches infants dying in infancy and the mentally impaired. But following this truth in paragraph 3, let's consider the subject now of paragraph 4, what God's effectual call says to the non-elect, to the non-elect. Reading paragraph 4 here in chapter 10. Others not elected 
although they may be called by the ministry of the word and may have some common operations of the spirit, yet not being effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. Much less can men that do not receive the Christian religion be saved, be they never so diligent to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. There are two categories of persons classified in this paragraph as the non-elect. There are those who live where the gospel is proclaimed, and they in fact hear it. And then there are others who reside in a place where they never hear the gospel. But in each case, these sinners are designated as the non-elect. In other words, very simply, God has not chosen to save them despite who they are or the circumstances in which they live. Okay, They're not among the elect. What does God's effectual call say to those not chosen by God to be saved? Two things. In the first place, to those sinners who live where the gospel is proclaimed and hear it calling them to Christ, in other words, to those sinners who live in Alabama, the confession states that if they're not effectually drawn by the Father, they neither will nor can truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved. So while it is an exceeding privilege and blessing for all to hear the good news of Jesus Christ proclaimed, yet, yet, to merely hear it with one's physical ears is not sufficient to bring them to salvation. It's not enough. It is not enough. They must be effectually drawn by the Father if they will truly come to Christ and close with Christ in saving conversion. Must be. Otherwise, they will be like the stony ground hearers in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, who Jesus tells us they hear the word, and immediately receive it with joy, yet, having no root in themselves, they endure for only a while as they eventually prove their seeming conversion to be false. This is why Jesus said of such in Matthew twenty-two fourteen that many are called and few are chosen. They give all the, listen, they give all the appearances. They give all the appearances of coming to Christ, but while their feet carry them down the aisle, or the profession of their lips brings them into the visible church, yet their hearts remain unmoved by the gospel. 
To say it very simply, they never truly came to Christ at all. Never. So let's be really clear about this. Very clear. Unless the Father chose you and gave you to Christ as one of his own, whereby you would be effectually called by the Spirit in the appointed time to be brought to saving faith in Christ, unless, unless this act of sovereign grace happens, then no matter how much gospel preaching you've heard, how much church attendance you've had, or even the fact that you grew up in a Christian family with genuine Christian parents, you will remain lost in the darkness of your sin. So then those whom God has not chosen to eternal life will never come to Christ. They will never come to Christ in spite of all the Christian privileges they've had. So let me clear up before we move to the next point. Let me clear up something for you. Maybe you've heard this before as an objection, as an objection to the doctrine of election, to the doctrine of effectual calling. There are those Christians objecting to the doctrine of God's sovereign grace who will say, but what about those who want to be saved, but God chooses not to save them? Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard that? Here's my answer to that. Those people don't even exist. They don't even exist. You're, you, you, you are speaking of a fiction. That is a complete fiction. The Bible nowhere, nowhere describes such a person who's desperately wanting God to save them, and God says to them, no, I'm sorry, but I didn't choose you. And that'll pull on a, on a lot of uh, emotional heartstrings because I've seen knock-down, drag-out fights over this in my experience, okay? Swords are drawn. People say, let's take it outside. And I'll just stand in the middle of the roadway now and going, why are you fighting over a fiction? These people don't even exist. Who are you even talking about? They don't exist. So let's be clear about that. Absolutely clear. If God leaves the sinner to himself, then the sinner whose will is in bondage to his sinful nature will remain hating Christ, hating the gospel, and they will never, never want Christ to save them. Never. That is why Romans 3 makes it so plain and clear to us. There is none who seeks after God. None. You weren't seeking after God. God was seeking you. 
God came after you. You weren't running after him. You had no desire. No desire. So let's, let's just put that, frankly, stupid and asinine objection to rest. Those people don't exist. So, now we can move on to the next point. I had to get that off my chest. In the second place, to those sinners who reside in a place where they never hear the gospel, they too will never be saved, notwithstanding their diligence, as our confession states, to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion they do profess. When we think about what this final clause is speaking to in paragraph 4 of chapter 10, we have to see the sinners described here as those in our day who would be in what is called the 1040 window. The 1040 window. Now, what is that? This section of the world is a rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude. It is home to the vast majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Skis, Jains, followers of ethnic religions, and even irreligious people as well. An estimated 3.28 billion, that's with a B, billion individuals live in approximately 6,013 unreached people groups. This calculates to over 1 million people who've never heard the gospel. Over 1 million, they've never heard it. This is therefore the largest population of people in the world who live their lives from birth to death, never exposed to the truth of Jesus Christ. But to such sinners, to such sinners as these, as in the 1040 window, does the gospel change in any way as to the exclusivity of its redeeming message that there is no other way to God but through Jesus Christ alone? Do the Muslims in Algeria or the Buddhists in Nepal get a free pass from God because they never, they never hear the gospel? The second line of confession in concert and in submission to the word of God answers such questions with a resounding no. No. Despite how diligent these people groups may be to frame their lives according to the light of nature and the law of that religion, they do profess, yet they remain in sin under the wrath of God for their sin. Romans chapter 1, 18-32 settles that. 
This is because man in sin has no other hope to be justified by God and reconciled to God but through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ alone. So no matter how sincere Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus may be in their religions, they will not be welcomed at God's judgment throne. The principles of their religions will do nothing but damn them to an eternal hell. This is because, and this is so important, this is because their religion is not the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, which is the only way to be rescued and put right with God. This is why then, when you look at the biblical references cited in connection with this clause in paragraph 4, the driving truth emphasized is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way to God. So we read in Acts 4 and verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, referring to Jesus Christ, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The implication is it's Christ alone. Christ alone. And then there's John 17 and verse 3, which has the recorded words of our Lord Jesus praying his high priestly prayer to the Father where he asserts, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, let's pause a moment and let's think about this. Salvation cannot be found in anyone else but Jesus Christ alone. It is by his name alone that men must be saved. No other name under heaven holds that kind of power and authority to rescue sinners from their sin. No other name. This means that Muhammad is not a savior. Or the Buddha. Or Brahma, Vishnu, or Shiva. These are false teachers and false gods of man's sinful imagination. The Lord Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son made flesh, is the sinner's only certainty and confidence to be redeemed from his sinful bondage and declared righteous by God. This is why eternal life in the context of God's redeeming grace is having, as Jesus asserts in John 17, 3, it's having a saving knowledge not only of God, but his eternal Son, Jesus Christ. This means, therefore, that the practical implication of this last statement in paragraph 4 in chapter 10 of the Second London Confession is what James Renahan rightly deduces as the requirement for missionary outreach in order for salvation to come 
to anyone. This is because, beloved, the message about Jesus Christ is the only good news in and for the world. The only good news. So let us not then allow anyone of the world, in the world, to say to us as Christians, to us as the church, well, your Savior is an American Savior. Jesus Christ, that's all about an American salvation. And, 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 it's, and it's so intolerant and disrespectful of you to say that Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and the rest don't have a right to get to God their way. We live in a religious, pluralistic culture that, that is America. Because so much of other nationalities who brought their gods with them to this country have said this. But here is what we say. But our God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, And the Father who sent his Son into this world lived, died, and was raised again and has been given the authority in heaven and over all the earth to lay claim to every nation as his inheritance. And therefore, it is not Unfair, it's righteous to declare that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. All other religions, as I've said already, are the vain imaginations of sinful men. And that's all they are. That's all they are. They begin with man, they end with man. The gospel is God's revelation to us. Because no man in his sin would ever come up with the gospel. Ever. They'll never make that up. This is God's revelation to us. And so therefore with boldness, as the church of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our head, our Savior... We therefore go, we go with his authority to say to any sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe not and you will be condemned. That is not our opinion. That is God's word. Amen. Let's pray.
Our Holy Father, what truly awesome things we have beheld today and have considered carefully, Lord, awe-inspiring and holy they are. Father, we ask of you that with what we have considered this morning from your word and that which our beloved confession confesses is the truth of your holy word, we pray, Lord, for greater conviction concerning the truth of your effectual call. And we pray, Lord, especially For those unreached people groups scattered throughout this world, but especially in that section called the 1040 window, Holy Father, we beseech you that your great saving mercy would visit them in the power of true and faithful gospel preaching. Send your laborers, O Lord, to such a region of this world that is in the deepest darkness. We pray, O Lord, that even these nations, as has been promised, Father, to your Son, They will be his inheritance. And we trust, therefore, that the gospel will penetrate supernaturally by the Spirit's power through faithful men of God that you would send to declare there is only one way to be right with the living, eternal, and true God, and that is by his Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. We commit this, Holy Father, into your hands. We believe you, Lord. We believe you for such a work of your grace to such people, even as you have, as you have shown and manifested and have brought such a work of grace to our own very lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.